You need a Bible this morning, and I would like you to take it out or turn it on and find Exodus chapter 7. Exodus 7. Some of you are already anxious that I said Exodus 7. We are fast-forwarding this morning. We're hitting the fast-forward button, and we're going to skip a little bit. And some of you don't like that, and some of you are grateful for that. Exodus is a long book, and we're not going to go verse by verse. And the reason is not that some is important and some is unimportant. The reason is, this is not surprising or shouldn't be surprising, the themes and the ideas in the book of Exodus repeat themselves. And so, for example, next week we're going to talk about all of the plagues. I'm not going to preach a sermon on each plague because it would essentially be the same sermon week in and week out. So we're going to fast forward a little bit this morning. I do want you to be aware of what we're skipping over, and you should go back and read it, fill in the gaps in this story. But let's just mention a few things that we're skipping over, and we'll start with this. Exodus 4 contains a strange story about Zipporah and the circumcision of Moses' son. You go back and read it, and then come back, and if you don't think it's strange, then I think you're strange, because it's a strange story. And I'll be honest, if you are in the room this morning and you say, I know what that story's about, I know exactly why it's in there, I want you to stay after church and educate me on what the story's about. I've read commentaries, and I've studied, and I've thought about it, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know exactly why it's in there. I'll give you my best guess. You can go back and read the story later. My best guess is Moses has spent 40 years in Egypt. Now he has spent 40 years in Midian. God is now getting him ready. He's preparing Moses to be the leader of Israel. And somewhere in those 80 years, Moses has lost, or maybe he's never even picked up in the first place, the significance of circumcision for God's people. And I I get the feeling when I read the story in in Exodus 4 that there's, there's more backstory that you don't find in Scripture. I get the feeling that there's some conversation at some point between God and Moses where God has told Moses, you need to take care of this for your family. You're going to be the leader of the Israelites. You need to be Israelites. And Moses has put that off or delayed or maybe just outright refused to do it. But it's a strange story, and you can go back and you can read it. Exodus 5 and 6 are a little bit easier to understand and make sense of. They describe Moses and Aaron making initial contact with Pharaoh. The initial meeting between Moses and Aaron coming into Pharaoh's court. And basically they they show up and they give the spiel, which we've read. God saying to Moses, this is what you're going to say. Let my people go that they may worship me, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh's response is, you can find it in Exodus 5.2. We're going to talk about it later. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. There's a little bit of a back and forth, but the end of it is that the people don't get to go, and their workload is increased. Their suffering increases. Things just don't get better immediately. And Moses, he doesn't like this. You remember, Moses has already been lecturing God about the whole thing. Send someone else. This is not a good plan. I don't know about all this. Moses really doesn't take kindly to the fact that their suffering gets worse and Pharaoh doesn't do what Moses told him to do. And I just want you to look and read this. It's really shocking to read. Look at Exodus 5, verse 22. Moses has said some pretty bold things to God, but this, this ups the ante. Exodus 5, 22. 
Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. That's pretty salty stuff. To come into the presence of God and to charge him with doing evil to his people. And to essentially say to God, you made a mistake in sending me. And when you've read the backstory, you know in Moses' mind he's thinking, this is exactly what I warned you about. This is exactly why I didn't want to come. Charges God with evil. And amazingly, God responds not with a finger in Moses' face, not with a slap across Moses' cheek, but he responds graciously and he tries to reassure Moses. And he says, Moses, it's going to be okay. I'm in control. I know everything that's going to happen. It's all going to work out according to the plan. And Moses continues to whine. He just continues to essentially talk back and to say, I don't like this. You're making me look bad. You're not saving your people. And back and forth they go until you come to the end of Exodus 6. And if you just look in your Bible between Exodus 6, verse 30, and Exodus 7, verse 1, there's a little white space in your Bible, and you need to understand that somewhere in that white space, something changes for Moses. There's some kind of shift in his thinking. Like, you leave off chapter 6, and he is whining towards God. And you pick up in chapter 7, it's almost like he's a different man. He's not perfect going forward. We're going to see Moses make plenty of mistakes after this point. But when you move from chapter 6 to chapter 7, it's almost like a light bulb has gone off or almost like something has clicked and he's gotten it. And Moses is just a different person as we go forward in the story. I do want to mention Exodus 6 contains a genealogy. It establishes Moses' Hebrew roots. I know that when you read through the Bible, you come to these genealogies and these lists of names, and I know that immediately your eyes just roll back in your head. And you think, oh my goodness, this is so boring. I can't pronounce these names. I don't know who these people are. Why is this in here? Just remind yourself when you come to something like this that although it seems boring and irrelevant to us, it had a very important purpose when Moses was writing this book and who he was writing it for, the people who had left Egypt, right? Moses didn't have a, uh, a birth certificate to say to the people, I really am one of you. They looked at him and they saw a shepherd or an Egyptian or some weird mix of the two, and he couldn't pull out his birth certificate and say, look, Hector County, right here, this is where I was born. I'm one of you guys. He didn't have that. He couldn't call up Ancestry.com and 23andMe DNA kit and say, look, let's just put the whole matter to rest. I'll spit in the tube, and I'll prove to you that I'm a Hebrew, and that'll settle it all. I'll get my genealogy report back, and I'll show you I'm related to you guys. He couldn't do any of that. And the genealogy, as he puts it in here, is basically Moses saying, I really am one of you guys. I know I grew up in Egypt. I know I spent 40 years in Midian, but I'm one of you. And we loop back to that story about Zipporah, and we say, look, my family is all in. We're Hebrews. We're Israelites. We've taken care of all that stuff. You can't deny my lineage. I'm one of you guys, and I'm qualified, essentially, to be the leader of God's people. So all that leads us to the big idea. Really simple. The Lord wants all people to know that he alone is God. 
He wants people to know the truth about who he is. This is interesting. Look in your Bible at Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7. This is one of the verses we're skipping. Exodus 6, 6 to 7. Say therefore to the people of Israel, God speaking to Moses, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God wants Israel to know the truth about who he is. And we say, well, of course he does. He wants his people to know the truth about him. But in the verses we're about to read, we add to that and we say it's not enough. It's not enough for God that his people know the truth about him. God is insistent that all people know the truth about him. You listen? Not just the ones that he saves from slavery, not just the ones who experience salvation, but also the ones who experience judgment and death. God's desire is that all people know the truth about who he is. So, with that established, let's read the passage, and then we'll pray and try to make sense of things. Exodus 7, 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still... Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Father, we come back to this ancient story, and we pray for wisdom, and we pray for understanding, and we pray for eyes to see the truth and hearts to receive the truth. Father, there are things in this passage that are difficult to understand, and we pray that you would give us wisdom 
Father, there's things in this passage that are difficult to accept. And we pray that we would not stand in judgment or authority over your word, but that we would submit to the authority of your word. Father, there are clear lessons in this passage that we need to take away and be mindful of. We pray that you would help us to see those. And Father, in all of it, we pray that you would help us to see truth about Jesus, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. So this last week I was reading and studying. It was early in the week. I have about 10 commentaries on the book of Exodus that I work through each week when I look at a particular passage. And I was about halfway through my stack. And I'm reading through and I'm reading the introduction to this uh, section and the guy's sort of talking about things. And the guy says, Bible scholar, Bible commentary, very technical. He says, you know, this story kind of reminds me of the movie Tombstone. And at that moment, I had a new favorite Bible scholar. I said, this guy is the best. This guy knows what he's talking about. This is somebody to listen to. And what he's talking about, I think he's point on, on spot. I think I, I think I agree with him. He says, if you've seen the movie Tombstone, you know that in the end... There's a big fight between Doc Holliday and Johnny Ringo. But the, the, the movie makers, the, the script writers, the guys who put the story together, they give you hints that it's coming all the way through the movie. Like if you pay attention, they have several scenes where you know at the end it's going to be Doc Holliday that's going to kill him. You know that's how it's going to end because they've set it up and they've teased it and they've given you all these previews and so... You can think about the scene where they're sort of standing across the card table and uh, they're speaking to each other in Latin. Me and Corey and Hunter did some, some original language research this week to get online and find out exactly what they were saying in Latin. So we've studied the original languages here. And uh, they go back and forth. And then uh, Ringo gets his gun out and he spins it and he looks really cool. And then Holiday gets his little cup out and he spins it and everyone laughs. And the tension kind of dies, but you know... That's not the end of it. Then there's a scene later in the movie where Ringo, he's had a few too many to drink, and he wants to fight Wyatt Earp out in the street. He just sort of bumps into each other. They've already had conflict, and he he wants to pick a fight with him, and Wyatt Earp says, I'm not going to fight you. And that's where, for the first time, Doc Holliday shows up, and he gives this famous line, and he says, you know what he says? He says, I'm your huckleberry. And they have a little back and forth, and you think, oh, this is it. They're going to do it. Here it comes. We've been waiting for it. And no, it doesn't happen yet. It's coming later. But in the movie, they're, they're sort of teasing it along. They're sort of giving you a preview to say, you know that there's a fight coming. And the Bible commentator that I read this week is saying, that's exactly what this passage is. It's a preview. It's a tease. It's not on full-on fisticuffs between God and Pharaoh and God and Egypt, right? The full conflict is not here, but it's just enough to sort of wet your whistle and give you a taste so that you know, as if you didn't know already, now you really know there's going to be a fight. And the fight's going to be between God on one hand and Pharaoh and Egypt on the other. And you say, wait a minute, what about Israel? Israel doesn't fight in this fight. Israel doesn't do anything. It's God versus Pharaoh in Egypt. And they're setting us up for this fight, giving us a preview. Now, there's a couple of things in the verses we just read that are kind of hard to wrap your mind around. And so I want to just, before we jump into the obvious lessons, I want to talk about some of these things that may be a little bit confusing or may be a little bit challenging for you and me. Three difficulties I want to point out. The first one is this. God made Moses, quote, God to Pharaoh. 
and you're looking at the screen and you're looking at your outline and you're saying, wait a minute, you left a word out. Because I'm looking at it in the English. If you're reading the ESV like me, it says right here at the beginning that he will make him like God to Pharaoh. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. English translations put that word like in to make it a little bit softer. And I'll just be honest with you, the Hebrew isn't soft at all. It's very blunt. And in the Hebrew, what it says is, God speaking to Moses, I have made you God to Pharaoh. And people struggle with this. People get a little bit uneasy with this, but I don't think you need to overthink it. I don't think the point of verse 1 is, Moses was a man And then all of a sudden, he became God somehow. That's not the point of the passage. Here's the point of the passage. God's about to beat Pharaoh, and he's going to beat him at his own game. He's going to beat Pharaoh, and he's going to beat him at his own game. If you've studied Egyptian history at all, you may know that the Pharaohs claimed to be incarnation of the gods. They claimed to be gods in some sort of human form. And they claim to have all of this power, power over the Nile and power over the animals and power over the weather and all of this power they claim to have as gods. And what God is saying is, look, Pharaoh doesn't have that kind of power, but a geriatric shepherd from Midian is about to have all of that power. I'm going to give it to him. And I'm going to prop him up as something that Pharaoh will understand. He's going to be God to Pharaoh. Or if you want to say it this way, I think it's fine. He's going to be like God to Pharaoh. And when Moses speaks, it's going to be God speaking. And when Moses acts, it's going to be God acting. And all of God's power and all of his authority is going to be given to Moses in this battle. And in that sense, Moses becomes God to Pharaoh. The second challenge is this. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see it in verse 3 and you see it in verse 13. He hardened his heart. This is not so hard for us to understand. I think it's pretty straightforward. I think the hard part is accepting it and fitting it into our categories of what we think God ought to be like. Right? It's not difficult to wrap your brain around what the text says. It's difficult to step back and say, does this fit with my idea of God? So here's the thing. At Emmanuel, we have a new members class. It's called Plugged In. We have it every couple of months. And at the Plugged In class, we tell you all about our church, how we operate, what we expect of members, what you can expect of us as a church family. The very first thing that I say to people when they take that Plugged In class, and many of you have sat through that class, the very first thing when we open the book up that I say to you is this. We believe the Bible is God's Word. It's it's the authority over us. We are not, as a church, we are not going to bend the Scriptures to fit our idea of what God ought to be like. And we are not going to bend the Scriptures to our own ideas of morality. Instead, because we believe the Bible is true, we are going to bend our ideas about morality to fit the Scripture. And we're going to bend our ideas about what God ought to be like to what the Scripture says He is like. And I'm telling you that you've got to find a category for this in your idea of God. Flip back and look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. We talked about this a few weeks ago. This is way before Moses ever got to Egypt. 
Exodus 4.21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God's plan long before Moses ever showed up was I am going to harden this man's heart and he will not let the people go. Jump up to our passage, chapter 7, verse 3. God says this, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. God says, I'm going to make his heart hard. And the result is he won't listen to you. Look down at verse 13. It says, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. You can take that a couple of different ways in English because English tends to be a little bit loosey-goosey with verbs. But in the original Hebrew, it's in the perfect tense when it says his heart was hardened. And what it's telling you in the perfect tense is this is not an ongoing process. This is a completed reality. It's done. God said he would make his heart hard. And the verse tells you, Exodus 7.13, his heart was hardened. And you may say, well, maybe this was like a, a one-time thing. It doesn't seem very God-like, so maybe he just did it this one time. Here's just a few examples of other times when God does the exact same thing to people other than Pharaoh. And what I'm saying to you is this. In your idea of who God is and what he's like and how he relates to people, you've got to find room for this category of God hardening people's hearts for his purposes and for his glory. You can sort of try to wiggle around it, and you can try to say, well, but this and that, and it doesn't fit with my, my ideas of philosophy of how the will works and, and our decisions and our freedom, and it can make you uncomfortable and you cannot like it. But at the end of the day, we bend our thoughts about God to what the Scriptures say about him. So I'm acknowledging this is a hard idea to sort of take in and begin to wrap your arms around and to think about. But you can't just try to explain it away. You can't say, well, I don't know that I really like that. It doesn't seem like Pharaoh really had a chance. Guess what? He didn't. God hardened his heart. He said he was going to do it, and he did it. And that's what the text says, and you've got you to accept this and find a way to fit it into your theology. And it's not just in the book of Exodus, it's throughout the Bible. Third, the magicians of Egypt had secret arts. I really wish we had not canceled church Wednesday night, not like I regret it because I wanted you to get out in that weather, but my plan was Wednesday night to take a poll uh, because the Wednesday night people, they're really smart. I don't know if you know that. The Wednesday night people, they're, man, they're smart. So I was going to take a poll amongst the Wednesday night people, and I was just going to see, just because I was curious, which of the, the options here do you think really happened? As I see it, there's only three options for explaining what the magicians of Egypt did when they cast down their staffs and they actually turned into serpents. Okay? I think one option is some form of snake charming. It's real. You can get online, you can see videos, people can make snakes do really wacky things. And some of the very good Bible scholars and commentaries I read this week said, look, snake charming is very, very common. 
in the Nile River Delta. That's where the people of Israel were. And there were people there who could basically, you know, use a pressure point or do the right thing or whatever. And the snake would be stiff. And then, boom, all of a sudden it would be a regular snake again. Snake charming. That's one choice. Second choice is some sort of sleight of hand. Like something you would see in Vegas, right? Like the magician's up there and he does something and you think, wow, that was amazing. But you know... He didn't really just turn that stick into a snake. He just made me think he turned that stick into a snake. So that's also an option. Option three is that these magicians, these enchanters, these wise men, whatever you want to call them, were empowered by some sort of evil, wicked, satanic, demonic forces, and that they actually did the same thing that Moses did. You can take whichever view you want, right? I read good Bible scholars this week. They took all three choices. And probably the smartest Bible scholar said, we don't know. I'm going to tell you, my guess is that they really did it. I think when the text says they did the same thing in the same way, they threw their staffs down. I think the text is saying to you, when, when Moses and Aaron did it, it wasn't an illusion. It wasn't sleight of hand. It wasn't snake charming. It really happened. And they did the same thing, it says. Really happened. You can take any view you want. We can argue about that. And in arguing about it, we might really miss the point of what's going on. Don't miss the point. Of all the signs that God could give to Moses and Aaron, why a staff becoming a snake? Could have done lots of different things. But I think the pick was 100% intentional. And I think God is challenging Pharaoh, warning Pharaoh. The Egyptians were fascinated by snakes. Many of them would wear amulets. This picture on the left is an amulet. And you see the little loop there. They would wear it on a a strap of leather or on a string of some kind. They would wear it around their neck. And the amulet like that was designed to protect them from the Egyptian god Pophis, the serpent god, who was the embodiment of evil and chaos. And they were terrified of gods like this because he could just unleash chaos on your life and anything bad, you might blame it on Pophis. But there was this idea, if we wear the little amulet and, and it's dedicated in the right way and blessed and all the stuff, then it will protect us from this serpent deity. The Egyptians built temples. You can visit the ruins of some of these temples to gods like Wajit. This picture over on the right is actually a hieroglyph, and it's the hieroglyph for the Egyptian goddess Wajit. And this was one of the goddesses that was believed to put pharaohs into power, and pharaohs would worship this goddess and credit this goddess for the fact that they were pharaoh, and they had power, and they had authority, and that was sort of the idea, all of these great things I can do as pharaohs because Wajit has given me this power to do it. They were so fascinated. You see the, the death mask in the middle. This is Tutankhamun's death, death mask right up at the top at the forehead. You've seen pictures like this maybe from textbooks or, or movies. The Egyptian pharaohs would wear a serpent on their forehead. Right? What I'm trying to tell you in all of these things is that in a very real sense, the snake, the serpent, is like the national symbol, the national animal of Egypt. And when you read about Moses coming in and Aaron, and they have power over the serpent to such a degree that their staff slash serpent eats all the others, it's a direct challenge to the power and the glory and the authority of Egypt. 
maybe the best way I could explain it would be like this. Imagine that you captured a bald eagle, went to Washington, D.C., went into the Oval Office, laid that eagle down on the president's desk, and chopped its head off. Like a beheading a bald eagle in the Oval Office. That's kind of confrontational, right? That's, like, that's a good way to pick a fight. Killing a bald eagle in the president's office. It's a national symbol, this, this animal that we all revere and look up to in an even greater way because I don't think many Americans worship bald eagles. In an even greater way, when Moses comes in with this snake miracle, God is warning Pharaoh, you don't have the power that you think you have. And even beyond a warning, you can really think of this as a declaration of war. This is God calling Pharaoh out and saying, look, you trust in these serpents I have all authority over these serpents. Your magicians can make the same thing my guy can make. My guy's serpent is going to eat yours. It's a warning, and it's a declaration of war. And I'll tell you something fascinating. You can jot this down and look it up later. In the book of Exodus, you will find the word swallowed up twice, two times. Once in chapter 7, when Aaron's staff that became a serpent swallows up the others. You'll also find it in Exodus 15 where Moses and the people are singing a song about what just happened at the Red Sea and they say the earth swallowed up Pharaoh's army. And this is Moses writing the story of the Exodus, looking back on these things, remembering what happened and he's putting the the pieces together and connecting the dots in hindsight and he says, you know what? He swallowed up his army in this instance and he gave him a preview of what was going to happen. He gave him a warning in this declaration of war. Now, we're getting close to Christmas. You in your house probably don't celebrate Christmas as a declaration of war. But I want you to understand that's exactly what Christmas is. When you think about the birth of Jesus into this world, it is God declaring war against the forces of evil. Look what we read in 1 John 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to pick a fight. A fight that he knew that he could win. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The beginning of a fight. The preview of a fight. And in the rest of this passage, as we think about these lessons that we're going to try to take away, we're going to talk about the lesson and how it applies to us. But ultimately, I don't want this to be about us. I want it to be about Jesus. And I want you to see how this entire story drives you forward to Christmas, to Jesus, and to the cross. So here's some obvious lessons that I don't want you to miss. Number one, God does remarkable things through obedient people. He does remarkable things through obedient people. Look, we have said over the last couple weeks, I have said some really unflattering things about Moses. And it's all built up to chapter 5, verse 22. We read it a minute ago where Moses says, God, you've done evil to these people. I don't know why you ever sent me to these people. You have not delivered the people and you have not kept your word. There's some really ugly talk out of Moses' mouth. But let's give credit where credit is due. Whatever happened between chapter 6 and chapter 7, Moses gets it now. And look what we read in Exodus 7, 
verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. That's pretty good advice for life. Just do what God tells you to do. Do exactly what he tells you to do. He says jump, you jump. He says go, you go. He says knock it off, knock it off. Just do what God tells you to do. The exact same thing is down in verse 10. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and they did just as the Lord commanded. No more arguing, no more excuses, no more whining, none of that nonsense. We're just going to go and we're going to obey God and we're going to do what he tells us to do. And specifically, what God told them to do here is just say what I want you to say. That's all you have to do. Open your mouth and say this, word for word. Just say it in his hearing. And if he wants to see something great, all you got to do is drop your stick. That's it. Just go speak for me. That's the job of the prophet in the Old Testament. So many times we think of prophets and prophecy and we think, oh yeah, those guys are predicting the future and saying crazy stuff. That's usually not what they do. Usually the job of the prophet is just to go to the people and say, this is what God says. Thus says the Lord. This is God's word. That's your job as a Christian. It's not to convince anybody that what you believe is true. It's just to say, this is what God says. This is the truth. As a parent and a grandparent, your job is not to save your kids or your grandkids. Your job is just to say, this is what God's word says. This is what it says. When you serve at Awana or you teach a Sunday school class or you share the gospel with somebody in your workplace, your job is not to convince anybody. Your job is not to argue with anybody. Your job is just to say, this is what the Bible says. This is what it says. My job as a pastor is not to crack jokes. It's not to be funny. It's not to entertain you. It's just to stand up here and as plainly as I can say, this is what God's word says. This is the word of the Lord. And Moses and Aaron finally get it, and they're obedient. And again, to give credit where credit's due, they do just what God commanded them to do. God does remarkable things through people who are obedient. That's certainly true of Jesus. Look what we read in John 6, verse 38. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I came to do what the Father told me to do. That's it. And the most remarkable thing ever accomplished in the history of the universe was a result of obedience. God the Son coming to do exactly what God the Father sent him to do. There's a lesson in here for you and me as we look at Moses' life, and that is God can do remarkable things through obedient people. He doesn't need your pedigree. He doesn't need your education. He doesn't need your money. He just wants you to be obedient. Second lesson is this. God will receive glory through salvation and through judgment. Through salvation and through judgment. In the book of Exodus, there's two kinds of knowing. The one kind of knowing that we usually think about is what we read in Exodus 6, 6 to 7, where God says, I'm going to save these people out of Egypt so that they know me. We think, right, God wants his people to know him. But there's another kind of knowing in the book of Exodus, and I'll be honest with you, it's a little bit frightening. 
It's kind of a scary kind of knowing, but you read it in Exodus 7, verse 5, where we read this. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You look at what comes right before that in verse 4. He says, I'm going to bring you out with acts of judgment. I'm going to bring judgment on these people. And when I do that, they're going to know. Takes you right back to to what Pharaoh said in chapter 5, verse 2, right? When Moses and Aaron first show up and they say, Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. And what does he say? I don't know the Lord. Why would I obey him? I've never heard of him. I don't know anything about him. I'm not going to let him go. All of that was about to change. By the end of the story, Pharaoh is going to know who God is. And that doesn't mean that Pharaoh's heart is softened and that he comes down at the end of a, a worship service and prays at the altar or something like that. He knows it in judgment. That can be hard to take in, that God intends to glorify himself through saving his people and through judging his enemies, both. You may think, well, that kind of sounds like an Old Testament thing to me. Like God was always blowing stuff up in the Old Testament, wasn't he? And, you know, the genocide and the wars and all the laws, it just sounds like an Old Testament thing. We don't believe in that anymore, do we? Look at Philippians chapter 2. This is very much in the New Testament. It's about Jesus. And it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That does not mean everyone's going to end up in heaven someday. That does mean everyone's going to know in the end who Jesus is. You're going to know. Everyone's going to know. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And some... I hope for you, some of us will bow and confess and it will be an ultimate, long-coming act of worship and rejoicing and gladness. But if you believe Philippians 2 and you read the rest of the New Testament and you read the book of Revelation, you understand that some are going to bow the knee and they're going to confess that Jesus is Lord and they're going to do it with clenched teeth and angry hearts. But everyone's going to know the truth. And you see it in, in seed form in the book of Exodus where God is saying to Moses, I want people to know the truth about who I am. And I intend to do that in saving my people and in bringing judgment on Egypt. And you see it in Philippians too. It's not just an Old Testament thing. God says every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess the truth about Jesus. For some that will be an act of worship. For some it will be done with angry hearts in clenched teeth, but all will know. That leads us to the last idea, the last lesson. God's desire for all people to know him fuels the sacrifices we make for global missions. When we read this in the book of Exodus, and we read it in Philippians 2, and we read it in the book of Revelation, we say God wants people to know the truth of him. Our response, one of our responses, has got to be to sacrifice for the cause of global missions. The text is telling us in the end, in the end, everyone will know. They will all bow and they will all confess, but that does not mean all will spend eternity in the presence of God. Some will know and they'll know in judgment. 
I hope that makes you uncomfortable. I hope that makes you uneasy. I hope that makes you think, well, what are we doing as a church to make sure that as many people as possible can know, and when they confess the truth about Jesus, bowed on their knee, that they do it as an act of worship and not from an angry heart with clenched teeth. That's where missions comes in. And that's why we sacrifice for the sake of global missions. Be done with any idea in your brain that says missionaries make a sacrifice. Scrub it out, erase it, don't ever think it, and don't ever say it. Christians make a sacrifice for missions. And missionaries make the sacrifice to leave their home and to go. And the rest of us make the sacrifice to stay home and to work and to live below our means so that we can send people to the ends of the earth. Why would we want to do that? Because we know that every person who lives on this planet now, in the past, in the future, someday will bow before Jesus Christ. And it will either be done in worship, in salvation, or in judgment. And we want as many people as possible to know the truth about Jesus and that when they bow on the last day, they rejoice and they celebrate the truth about who Jesus is. I don't want a show of hands, but Christmas time comes around, money gets tight, and uh, I bet some of you have thought to yourself, either this holiday or in the past, man, I wish I could just win the lottery. I could buy all the Christmas presents I needed. I got to buy a present for this person and that person and just win the, could win the lottery. I could pay this off. And oh, I got online this week and checked. It was a, a measly, the uh, Powerball, a measly two hundred million this week. Can you think of a thing or two you could do with two hundred million dollars? Yeah. You realize that when you were born in the United States, you hit the geographic jackpot, right? You hit the jackpot. You enjoy more comfort and more prosperity and more security than the vast majority of people who have ever lived or will ever live. You hit the jackpot. And all that material stuff aside, you hit the jackpot in gospel access. To be born in the time we live, in the place we live, when you can go to Mardell or you can get on Amazon or you can come to this church or that church or any other church, you have access to the gospel that millions, scratch it, billions of people don't have. You have hit the jackpot. And you and I will give an account for how we steward that blessing. We'll give an account for that. I gave you more prosperity and more stuff, and more comfort, and more security. You didn't have to be afraid of anything. I gave you more study Bibles, and more opportunities to go to church. And I gave you all of this stuff. What in the world did you do with it? And I hope that when you add all of that stuff up, on the last day, we'll be able to say with a clear conscience, we made sacrifices so that people would know. Because our heart was lined up with God's heart. We read in the scripture that God wants all people to know. He wants them to know. And we know that in the end, they're all going to know and they're all going to bow. 
and our desire with what time and what resources and what gospel access we had, we want to steward that in such a way that in the end we look back and we say, we made the sacrifices that we were supposed to make so that the gospel could go out to the ends of the earth and that as many people as possible could know the truth about God so that when they bow before Jesus on the last day, they do it as an act of worship. Listen, we're going to show a video about missions in a few minutes after we sing. We've been talking about our world missions offering. We're not asking you to just throw some change in. We're not asking you to just say, well, you know, here's a couple of bucks. We're asking you to make a sacrifice. And if for you a couple bucks is a sacrifice, then make that sacrifice. For most of us, that's not a sacrifice. And as followers of Jesus, we all sacrifice. Some make the sacrifice to go. Some of us make the sacrifice to stay and to live below our means so that we can give. Because our heart needs to line up with God's heart, and that is that all people know the truth about who he is. So I want you to bow, and we're going to pray together before we sing one last song. Father, we are grateful for your word. And, um, Father, we're humbled by your word. We see your grace and your mercy on display. Father, we're humbled in that we see your power and your majesty and your holiness and your righteousness and your sovereignty over all things, even over our hearts. Father, we're humbled in that we live when we live and where we live. And Father, know that we will be held accountable for how we steward your blessings and the opportunities that you've given to us. Father, we look back and we celebrate Christmas as a declaration of war. It's not our attempt to work our way back to you, but it's you coming to rescue us. It's you sending your son to destroy the works of the devil. And Father, that gives us hope. Father, we pray that as we sing about Jesus, Father, as we sing about Jesus being the cornerstone of our faith, the solid rock that our faith rests on, Father, we pray that the truth about Jesus would be real to us, that it would be beautiful to us, and that Jesus would be exalted as we sing. We pray in his name. Amen. Stand up.